Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Everything Economics. I'm your host, Holly Murdoch, and would like to begin by acknowledging that this podcast is recorded on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish people, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. This week, or this episode, I am bringing you an interview with Jody Kirshner. She is an affiliate with New York University and author of the recent novel Broke, which follows the lives of seven people in Detroit discussing how cities are underfunded and what happens when a city goes bankrupt. I had been working on an episode about the Australian bushfires, but it was honestly making me pretty upset, so I need a little bit more time to get that one out for you. So I thought this interview would be a really interesting conversation for everyone to listen to anyway, so I do hope you enjoy it. Not at all. I am I'm feeling a little bit draggy from traveling, so I apologize for that. And That's okay. I'll just be able to perk up. It's December. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. So before we get into the book that you wrote, um, titled Broke, I'm interested to know what your relationship or connection to Detroit is. I came to Detroit as someone who had been a bankruptcy law scholar and was interested in bankruptcy. And I was very conscious of the fact during the years that I was doing the research that I wasn't from there. And so was very consciously upfront about that in my conversations and hope that coming in as an outsider provided a useful perspective, I know that it also carries limitations. As an outsider, and obviously you seem pretty immersed if you do teach bankruptcy law, um, what inspired you to write not only a book about a quote-unquote financially broke city, but also this is a really narrative, human-focused journey, I guess, at what happened to the city? At the time that Detroit and really many other cities like it were entering into bankruptcy, I was teaching and writing about bankruptcy law full time and really a great believer in the process. But this was a, a fairly new use of bankruptcy, the idea of using it for a city as large as Detroit with problems as generalized as Detroit. And so I... I read with interest the coverage of the bankruptcy. There were dramatic headlines about rising municipal debt across the country. And also in policy and academic circles, there were discussions of bankruptcy as really effectively a cure-all to the challenges of distressed cities. And it seemed to me that in that discussion, there was really very little conversation about the people involved in the bankruptcy and the effects of bankruptcy on people in the long term. I started spending more time in Detroit and talking to more people in Detroit and ultimately decided that it was really very urgent to write a general audience book about the human cost of bankruptcy. Yeah, and I think that um, I... So I've I've done some research into the book and read the forward and things like that but I am hoping to read read it in its entire entirety at some point and one of my frustrations or I guess something that similarly drove me to create this podcast is 
just like bringing the human element back into things. A lot of a lot of um, coverage of a city going bankrupt just talks about the dollars and thousands of jobs X Y Z without actually getting down to that level of the individual humans. So I thought that was really interesting. I'm curious, what was the most interesting thing that you learned? I think that taken together, the seven lives that the book chronicles begin to create a portrait of what bankruptcy can't do and the importance of much harder, much slower anti-poverty work. Um, One of the people that I follow is Lola, and she has a four-year college degree in a city where 13% of adults have bachelor's degrees. But she commutes 80 hours each way to a job at a call center in the suburbs. She struggles to afford the house where she doesn't feel very safe living. And she worries about her daughter's education in an education system where students receive half the funding as students in cities like New York or Boston. Is that what you think makes Detroit unique? In this instance, because it's mentioned in the forward that there are about 70 probably more cities that did go bankrupt in like a post-GFC world. What what makes Detroit unique in this context? On the one hand, I don't see Detroit as unique. I mean, it is emblematic. Of, of how we as a country have tended to treat our cities since the late 1970s. There has been steady downward trend lines in federal funding to cities. States have turned around and passed on cuts to cities so that federal aid to cities peaked in 1978 and fell by half between 1980 and 1988. So there are, are many cities that are are struggling to make ends meet in the wake of various global trends, globalization, deindustrialization, suburbanization. I also think that Detroit is unique in many ways in that because of its industrial past, it has access to a lot of philanthropy. It also holds a pretty storied place in the American imagination so that people have paid attention to the bankruptcy and have filtered a lot of charitable support to the city, freeing it from a lot of the austerity that would otherwise follow a bankruptcy. Vallejo, California, which did not have that kind of attention and financial support, saw in the wake of its bankruptcy cuts that, for example, left it with a police station open to the public just two days a week. So what is it, what exactly, um, for anyone listening who doesn't know, what does it really mean for a city to become bankrupt? And when you just mentioned that bankruptcy doesn't fix everything, what specifically does it fail to do? So I would first say that the idea of bankruptcy for cities was fairly untested until the wake of the financial crisis. Um, municipal bankruptcy wasn't even in the bankruptcy code until around the time of the Depression, but very few cities went into bankruptcy, and most that did used it because they had lost a large lawsuit and needed to be able to pay the damages or had made one wrong financial debt. 
we told New York in the 70s to drop dead in the in the telling of of it. But in fact, the federal and state governments were very helpful to New York City, and it didn't go bankrupt. So what bankruptcy does is it's a negotiated process to write down debts with creditors, either by reducing the amount or changing the form of the payment or changing the the responsibility to the creditor. It often comes along with other cuts to reduce the spending that the city has or increases in fines and fees to increase revenues that the city has. It also can get very political because bankruptcy can enable the rewriting of pension contracts and it also can end in adjustments to union bargaining contracts. So again, I, I just, there's a lot that I'm seeing that it can't do. It can't reverse property tax revenue losses, income tax revenue losses. It can't increase employment. It can't reverse cuts to state and federal support. I would give as another example Joe, who the book follows. I mean, he comes to Detroit from New Jersey with ideas and education and energy and cash, and he wants to start a business. And he is able to buy a commercial space in cash, but he can't get a loan to renovate the building to bring it up to code. And you can just imagine if he were able to do that, as in many parts of this country he would be able to do, that would be a very stabilizing force on the neighborhood to have a place where people could go. He envisioned a gathering space where people could eat. He might be able to employ people. And that would just be a, a force spreading through his block in a way that bankruptcy itself isn't. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I've never really considered um, inequity between funding cities versus states versus federal funding like I've I've I talk a lot about inequity of wealth among people um so I found this pretty interesting so is it just more the fact that if a city is going bankrupt like Detroit it's not really fixing its revenue problem either and then second to that why why are they not funded properly? Like, why do cities not get the the cash they need to actually support the people who live here? So yes, I agree with your with your revenue point. I mean, it's sort of the analog exists for companies. You know, companies go through bankruptcy and they balance their budget, but if the company itself is, say, a cassette tape player company, that doesn't mean that there will suddenly be new demand for cassette tape players. So bankruptcy does very well what it does, which is balance a budget and renegotiate debts. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing in and of itself. It is good to have lower debts. It is good to not have to pay as much money to service those debts. That's money that can go to other things. But it's it's a tool. It's not a solution for cities. 
in answer to your question about the why of all of this, you know, I think that the politics of urban issues have really changed as voters have progressively moved to the South and the West and to the suburbs. You know, whereas urban voters used to be a major powerful part of the electorate, and you see recently in elections the lip service being paid to rural issues because of that voting strength, with far less attention being paid to urban voters and their concerns, even though they're often very similar to rural concerns. Yeah, so I guess is other voices just quieter? Yeah, it's just interesting. Like I, I think about I think about America and there's just so there's so much wealth there. Um, like I wonder what is what is the funding going to if not cities and things like that. And I guess Detroit has lost so much of its industry because of globalization. So that kind of makes it unique in a way. And we can delve deeper into the voting issue with the way the electoral college is structured and how how the Senate represents an entire state and the city gets somewhat diluted in that population, or even in the types of gerrymandering that there have been some court cases attesting to that that seek to concentrate urban votes into just a few districts so that there is there is data on on the weakened state of the urban vote at the state and the federal level yeah um something that i understand is happening in detroit over the past few years as well is there are a lot of artists and tech companies moving their businesses to the city because it is so cheap to live in and i would imagine that that is having a bit of an impact as well in terms of gentrification and people being pushed even further out to the suburbs and things do you talk about that at all i do talk about that and it's complicated detroit is a a very very large landmass and it is down to fewer than 700,000 people from a peak of over 2 million. So there is a lot of space and there is a lot of need for density and tax revenues. And there are a lot of neighborhoods where, as I, the, the people that I follow in the book often live in neighborhoods that are really untouched by anything that is currently happening in the city. So that I'm more concerned about people living in those neighborhoods and how there can be changes in the poverty there. That said, I mean, Charles, who is another person that I follow in the book, who's a lifelong Detroiter, his family made it into the middle class in the auto industry, bought a house that was their pride and joy that is now on a block where eight of 16 houses are occupied. And Charles notices some of the changes taking place downtown. Specifically, I think we were talking about the Ford Motor Company buying up the old train station and planning to put its electronic mobility 
then driverless car research jobs there, which really could be very transformative for the city. But as Charles watched that, he said, you know, I grew up in the Motor City. It looks to me like this is becoming tech town. I guess if things get more expensive, then I'll need to get a job at one of the big three auto companies, except that he knew that there weren't very many of those jobs left. And this seems to me to be the the core of it is what do we do for people like Charles across the country who who don't have the skills for a, a tech economy? And what do we do for the neighborhoods that they live in? Yeah, I was actually just going to ask that, um, how those sort of those sort of companies and jobs, like they're, it's great, they do a lot of good, but at the same time, if the people who are already living there don't have the educational skill set and perhaps they can't afford to go to college because it is very expensive and with the history of like public education being privatised, it doesn't necessarily benefit them in the same way that it would benefit some engineer from a different city just moving down there with loads of cash which yeah so I'm glad that you mentioned that um did you learn so in the forward I noticed that there was a lot of talk about as Detroit became blacker the political outcomes became bleaker so how do you think that race plays into all of this what do you want this book to do To me, Detroit is a notorious example of bankruptcy, but Detroit is is not alone. And my hope is that by by understanding Detroit's experience, we can push for better outcomes for other cities instead of penalizing cities through forced austerity. Actions at all levels of government could instead be supporting them and the people who live in them. The other thing that I would say um, about your question that there's a lot of money in America, the issue of corporate subsidies to me looms large in all this. Many of the people that the book follows have skills in construction work. Miles has been a contractor of whole buildings prior to the financial crisis and has seen his work disappear. Meanwhile, there are building projects all over downtown. For example, right as the city was entering into bankruptcy, the state and city finalized a deal to have a new hockey arena constructed. That came with a billion dollars in tax subsidies with a promise from the company that it would hire one half of its construction workers from the local Detroit community. It didn't fulfill that promise. The company said that it couldn't find enough qualified or skilled Detroiters. And so I think there's disconnect between subsidized projects and people who potentially could be working on them and benefiting from them is a disconnect that is very important to solve. Yeah, that is really interesting. What do you think? Do you think that there is an actual 
there was an actual labor shortage or they just the companies weren't advertising in the right places perhaps like what do you think actually led to that non-fulfillment you know i've seen miles work and he is he is skilled he knows what he's doing he has a track record from there it starts to get complicated and um, i think it's a matter of what licenses projects expect people right. to have and whether they're affordable. I think it's about transportation to job sites, criminal records in many cases. But I mean, this is such a need. At one point recently, the, the current mayoral administration opened up a new skills training program, and within 24 hours, 1,500 people had signed up for it. Wow. But meanwhile, you see Miles doing things like going to his laundromat to try to, to network and try to find more work. Yeah, it's it's pretty fascinating. Um, like, I find cities like this really interesting just because, like, when the, when the blue-collar work sort of changes a lot and there is a huge, huge shift in just the way that the economy runs... Um, and obviously Detroit is all pretty much rooted in the auto industry. I mean, the the issue of jobs is very complicated. Yes. Three quarters of employed Detroiters work outside the city. There is a point in the book when Lola, who is working at this call center in the suburbs, asking questions about air conditioning systems. She's been chatting with one of her callers who tells her that maybe instead of answering questions about air conditioning systems, she could sell them instead on commission and she would probably be more successful that way. And at that point, she is not able to drive herself and her grandfather has been driving her the 80 miles to work each day. But it just so happens that about a mile from her house is an old shopping mall and it's so it has itself gone through bankruptcy. Most of the stores are abandoned. She often directs people who are driving to avoid a traffic light by driving through the parking lot of the oh, sure. mall. But it does have a home improvement store in it. And so she asked her grandfather to stop off on the way home so that she can ask about jobs. And they don't have any, but she's very clear that even if they did she wouldn't want to work at that store. She would want to work at a suburban branch because if she was going to be paid on commission, then she'd want to be where the money was. And in her view, the money was in the suburbs. Yeah. So there's a, a lot at play in a position, where it is, how you get there, whether you have the skills for it, who the customers are. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, business and consumer confidence probably plays a big role in that as well. Just because, yeah, it's, it's really, it's really tough. Um, by the sounds of it, Detroit was hit very hard by the global financial crisis and them among many other cities are still, still haven't really recovered from it, which is interesting and pretty devastating to be honest. Um, do you think that you will revisit this topic in a future novel? Well, nonfiction, 
And I'm currently working on a new book that's, that's largely inspired by Lola and just the fact that she has college debts and she has a bachelor's degree. Why why is she working in a call center? Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm just getting started on something about college debt and how free community college fits in and how to get low-income students to and through education that will move the needle on economic mobility. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, is there anything else you want people to know? Or I think this would be a pretty interesting gift to give someone if you've got someone in the family who likes a a good nonfiction read um, that's super relevant to not only Detroit, but perhaps where they live as well. So where can people find the book online and where can they find you? The book is available online in, in all the typical places, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, Powell's. And I have a personal website that's jodyadamskirchner.com. Uh, Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for spending all this time talking with me. So again, that was Jodie Kirshner. You can find Broke on all of the places she mentioned, which I will link in the show notes, including her own website. As always, thank you so much for listening. You can follow the show on Twitter at Every Economics or find me at Talia Murdoch. For more shows on the network, you can find us at Cave Goblins across all social media platforms. If you do want to support the show and everything else we do here on the network, please rate and review on iTunes or head to our Patreon, patreon.com slash cavegoblins. Our current goal is to upgrade our streaming camera because it turns off every 30 minutes, which is not ideal. This will be my last episode for the year and I plan on returning early in January with a bit of a new format and strategy for everyone. So think more multi-parters, more detail and deeper dives into topics of interest. Thank you again for listening. Be kind to each other. I am Talia Murdoch and this has been Everything Economics. Hey, my name is Eric. I'm Piers. And this is Podcast vs. Podcast. You're listening to us here on the Cave Goblin Network. We take turns pitching podcasts to each other. We're trying to find a good podcast to do because we don't have any ideas. So turn off whatever show you're listening to. Turn on our show. This is a Cave Goblin Podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.